0: for that wonderful introduction. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's a bit intimidating to write a book on religious life that you know that actual vowed religious will read. So I, I hope that it lives up to your expectations. It should be out later this year. Uh, I wanted to begin, um, the the, ta- the title of my talk is Intellectual Life in Dark Times. And I thought it might be worthwhile to just pause for a minute and reflect on what what a dark time is. Um, And I'm not sure what we mean when we talk about dark times. Um, I think I usually go to previous generations, the kinds of things that my grandparents or great grandparents went through the First World War, the Second World War. Um, I think about the Great Depression in the United States, Um, times where um, the capacity to live fully as a human being seems uh, dramatically under threat. So um I suppose many, many of us think, I think all around the world, that we are entering into or are already in a dark time as we speak. And I'm not again not sure what that means or where that perception comes from. But I think part of what I want to have in the background, and it would help me if each of you reflected on it for a minute, is just to think about what exactly is threatened in a dark time what concerns us what frightens us what kinds of uh, deprivations does it involve exactly um and what um what's the content of our fears for the present or for the future so i i'll just leave that with you and you can chew over it and i'm going to tell some stories um and uh, as if you've read some of my work, you'd know that's how I like to work um, through stories, in part because I think we're, sh- we're shaped in many ways in our daily lives by our imaginations. Uh, we- reasoning is, is quite interesting and important. I've spent a lot of time working with it <laughs> or trying to, but in the end, I feel like our, our, our largest motivations and our largest weaknesses and our largest strengths all lie in our imagination. So there's just meant to be some food for your imagination. Uh, And I say that even though the stories I'm speaking of, I think are all true. So uh, the Russian dissident, Irina Ratushinskaya, used poetry as a form of resistance during her imprisonment by the Soviet authorities in the early 1980s. On the transport train to the prison, At any point of contact with other prisoners, she would recite poems, original or classic. Memorized poems were written out on scraps of paper and exchanged between prisoners. When she was denied writing materials, she scratched her poems onto bars of soap with matchsticks, washing them away after she had memorized them. She transferred them to cigarette paper when she could, and they were smuggled out of prison to be published in the West. The Romanian medievalist Irina Dumitrescu writes about Romanian political prisoners who taught each other Morse code and tapped out poetry through the walls. Some taught each other languages when using knots on a piece of string to code letters. One Romanian officer in Siberia made ink out of blackberries and wrote out French poems he had memorized in school. More than one such prisoner referred to their time in prison as a university. So one might think that the pursuit of poetry or philosophy or languages in prison as a safeguard for one's dignity or as a bond of connection between one person and another is a kind of special form of the intellectual life, a sort of hothouse flower, a rare breed. Um, But since I began working on this, uh, I always discover more and more examples. Um, uh, Andre Vey, the mathematician, was imprisoned by the vichy government in the 40s um, and undertook a major mathematical proof uh, while in prison and he joked that it was only be possible in prison for him to he needed more prison time if he was going to finish his mathematical work and really become the mathematician he meant to be i also think about stories from uh the the history of the united states um and especially the history of uh, enslaved peoples um frederick douglas Uh, who is the great uh, abolitionist, um, grew up in slavery uh, and he received uh, his first lessons in how to read while still enslaved. Um, He was taught by his mistress and he was punished when he was discovered by his master. Both he and his mistress were punished for learning how to read. So he was strictly forbidden uh, to learn how to read. But he was fascinated by what he had already Caught. So he taught himself in secret. He quizzed schoolboys that he met by chance. Uh, he he would find and decipher random bits of word or text that he would find uh, while working in shipyards in Baltimore. Uh, he found at last a copy of a book called *The Columbian Orator*, which is a collection of classical orations, um, and he he read it backwards and forwards, and developed for himself. The oratorial tones, which made him so famous, he used his oratory to speak uh, on behalf of of the freedom of his enslaved his enslaved brothers and sisters. So that um, another famous story happened on a much broader scale than that, um, and without the benefits of literacy, uh, the Bible to which enslaved people in the U.S. were exposed, and they were exposed to it in expectation that they would receive it in a servile spirit. Um, but they didn't receive it that way, so they heard its central story of the people of Israel, who are led out of Egypt and slavery into freedom, and they recognized it as a human story, as applying to them as much as it applied to anyone. So by legend, the great um, conductor on what we call the Underground Railroad, the secret, um, the secret network which led slaves out of, into freedom. Uh, The great conductor was called Harriet Tubman uh, and she was called Moses after the biblical figure. She sang spirituals uh, called Go Down Moses or Steal Away, spirituals about um, the liberation of the Israelites. And she did that in order to call people to her journey. She would walk by the back of the plantations and sing and everyone knew what it meant. So this is an example of a, a piece of language stories, which are used, att- attempted to be used by um, the, the dominant class, the class of the powerful, um, a class of explo- uh, exploitative, um, violently exploitative and brutal uh, human beings. Uh, but the words and the stories are taken into, up in a different way. They're heard and appropriated and changed in the hearts of those who encounter them. Uh, so other examples, um, I'm going to go back to my other stories here. So, uh, another, pr- if we go back to a prison story, which is also a part of our, uh, the tradition of, uh, black American literacy in the United States, the great African-American activist, Malcolm X entered prison as a man named Malcolm little. He was a defiant hedonist. He was an addict. He was uh, reliant on petty crime. Uh, his father had been murdered by uh, white men when he was a child. His family had been broken up by the local welfare office. So he, when he was finally sent to prison for theft, he read the entire prison library, first the dictionary, then books on etymology and linguistics. He studied languages. He converted to Islam. He read the Bible, the Quran, the great works of Western philosophy, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Plato, Spinoza as well as works of Asian philosophy. So he, he described himself feeling his old ways of thinking disappear like a snow off the roof. So um, examples of, uh, as even Douglas and, and the enslaved peoples of the United States show, examples of the flourishing of intellectual life in social isolation and relative poverty extend far past uh, prison walls. So consider an ordinary young bookworm uh, as I was as a child who retreats from the slings and arrows of social life to learn and to think and to ponder and to imagine. Or at a different level, consider the case of Albert Einstein who was unable to find an academic job. Uh, And these days when uh, I often find myself talking to academics, they're often looking for work um, it's always nice to remember that Albert Einstein couldn't get an academic job. Uh, so he took a, pat- a job in a patent office uh, isolated from any academic community. And in that little office, he found a way to do the work that turned out to be really transformative for physics and for his own career. Or another favorite example, and I'll come to the end of my stories and begin reflecting a bit, uh, John Baker um who was a, a British lover of literature without a college degree he worked an office job at the Automobile Association of Essex that's the uh a sort of uh driver's association and he stalked uh, peregrine falcons over Essex by bicycle for 10 years carrying maps voluminous notes before, and he consolidated all of these works, this 10 years of staring at birds into a sort of poetic masterpiece called the Peregrine. These are all people who pursued intellectual activity, learning, thinking, mathematical proofs, um, looking at birds or or living creatures, thinking about the nature of the universe, um, pondering the history of human beings and their communities they pursued this activity outside of universities um, outside often of any particular uh, social support at least at the time when they did so and they they did it with an intensity that one doesn't always find in uh, sort of leafy comfortable academic environments so as the case of of Malcolm X illustrates, intellectual life is not just a retreat or a refuge from, or actually Douglas also, it's not just a retreat or a refuge from difficult realities or dehumanizing realities. It's also a source of transformation and growth. So um, the, the bookworm in retreat has obvious reasons to be studying. But there's also can be things that happen to you as you learn and study and think and ponder and reflect. You can become transformed. So consider the ancient testimony of uh, Augustine's Confessions, uh, his autobiography uh, of how how he became a Christian uh, in the in the fourth century A.D. in North Africa. So Augustine has the perfect life. He has a promising career, a loving concubine, the prospect of a wealthy wife to advance his prospects. He belongs to the cult of the Manichaeans, uh, which is agnostic worldview that sees the whole world as a, a struggle between material forces of good and evil. And that permits him a, it's very deterministic. So you have you have no free will under the Manichaean point of view. so it, it permits you a cosmic worldview that excuses him from his, his moral responsibility for his compulsions and the, the exploitation of his concubine. So he wins, he's very intelligent, he's schooled in their metaphysics and he wins many arguments uh, over ignorant Christians. Um, and as he reads, he takes up a course of serious reading in philosophy over the course of 10 years. And it eventually bores holes in this picture of life that he um, has talked himself into. And the whole edifice of his life, which is composed of his his ambitions to succeed in the Roman empire, um, his personal life, his concubine, uh, his life in the Manichaeans, which give him this kind of elite social status um, where you have a an esoteric doctrine which from which you can look down onto others so the whole thing comes to pieces because he spends 10 years reading philosophy he realizes at first that the mannequin worldview just isn't consistent with basic science and from there he be- starts to doubt everything um and then he begins to become persuaded that there's something more than just the material world by reading uh, Platonist philosophy. Um, and then he, he meets Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, and he has a, a conversion uh, to the Catholic faith, quite dramatic conversion, and gives up his, his career in rhetoric, his ambitions to succeed as a, in the Roman Empire, and gives up his concubine and his prospects of marriage. So um, that's a case where when his intellectual life which is pursued not in uh, forced uh, diminishment or isolation like our, our prisoners or, or the enslaved people. Um, it's not enforced uh, difficulty, but the learning itself in a way causes the difficulty. It, it undermines uh, his, the terms of his success um, and makes his life much more difficult. Um, So the Christian parallel to the studious prisoners takes its most famous form in the images of the Virgin Mary at the arrival of the angel Gabriel. So in a tradition dating from the second century and influencing Christian art and literature through the Renaissance, Mary was a bookworm, uh, an avid reader of the holy scriptures. Her reading for the, the fathers of the church symbolized her wisdom and the freedom which that wisdom gave her to consent to bear the messiah to bear jesus this um and her enclosed if if you look at these images um her if you just uh, try to find a, a painting of the annunciation from say the middle ages of the renaissance chances are it's her with a book studying carefully as the angel arrives and she's always in these sheltered and enclosed surroundings, which symbolize, uh, I think, the cost of that wisdom. The circumstances under wisdom grows in silence, in solitude, in deprivation, and in sacrifice. So the bookworms escape, the thoughtful prisoners, um, the, the enslaved people struggling for literacy and for a sense of their own dignity, the isolated bird watcher, they evoke Catholic and Orthodox contemplative traditions. That's our Eastern and Western uh, that that Father alluded to at the beginning. The desert retreat, the uh, platform on the pillar, the cell of the monk or the nun. The Christian versions of poverty, failure and confinement have an ineluctably supernatural character unlike the first examples we began with. Despite the circumstances in the Christian images, the individual shares in a kind of communion with the transcendent God that creates and redeems. But forms of asceticism are found in a broad swathe of global religious traditions with different theological premises. And asceticism, sacrifice and suffering Um, either by choice or by acceptance, it has its basis in our human elements, the necessity of forms of discipline and sacrifice to cultivate what's best in us, thanks to the corrosive impact of the realm of social competition uh, on our motivations, especially desires for wealth or status or, or social comfort or for getting along. So by I say that uh, forms of discipline of sacrifice are necessary to cultivate what's best in us. And I don't just mean intellectual excellence, but I mean the ability to recover one's dignity from the diminishments of social life and to form communities with others that are on the basis of that dignity rather than on the basis of social use. So that kind of dignity in the community They're not reserved to Einstein's or brilliant dissidents or um, brilliant people who, um, by the chances of life, end up in prison rather than in a law office. Um, They're a common human heritage. They belong to everyone. So what is it that makes learning, gives learning this effect, the effect of recovering one's dignity, or the effect of uh seeing other human beings on the basis of their dignity or the or what ge- what makes them a refuge or a source of transformation it's a very co- uh vast and sort of complicated question and i could say any number of things about him about it and i um i can't be sure not knowing you all um halfway across the world uh whether um know what exactly is the thing that you need to need you need to hear but i i did find this passage um just more recently and i thought i would share it with you Uh, anna julia cooper was an advocate in the 19th century in the u.s for classical education for black americans and she wrote in 1892 paper on the higher education of women and she described its effects as follows As the sun goes down into the charmed circle of friendship, she may gather the best the world has known. She can commune with Socrates about the daimon he knew, that's Socrates' spiritual guide, and to which she too can bear witness. She can revel in the majesty of Dante, the sweetness of Virgil, simplicity of Homer, the strength of Milton. Here at last can be friendship without suspicion, friendship without misunderstanding and love without jealousy. So the, I mentioned this last passage, which, which gets to the core of great books education, which is something that I spend quite a lot of time uh, working in and promoting. And it is, I think, a way of tapping in, 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 the, in the West and the United States and in Europe to the wisdom traditions on which the Western culture is based. And I think that those every culture, um, most especially the East, um, the Chinese tradition, uh, the Indian tradition, they also have very rich and well-developed wisdom traditions. And I think that part of what is being described in I'm circling around or when someone like Anna Julia, Julia Cooper is talking about is that. Uh, the notion of there being a kind of wisdom which um, is passed on by a community and which is both a refuge and a source of transformation for any individual who chooses to undertake um, the discipline that's needed to to reach it okay so that was a lot of stories and then a um, Suggestion about uh, the importance of isolation, uh, sacrifice, and suffering in in getting in touch with with our dignity, um, the things that are deprived um, that we're deprived of in in the course of social life, in the course of the pursuit of ambition and wealth. And I've connected that with the wisdom traditions of the East and the West, and I think, as I say, I think every culture has them. They're not always written traditions as we have in the East and the West, but there are, I think, always wisdom traditions. So I've described some unusual examples of people who live an intellectual life, a life which the love of learning is exercised for its own sake. And the, that cultivating that love and, and sort of training its exercise is called in an old fashioned term uh, in the United States, liberal learning. And it includes, but not exclusively, the what are called the humanities. The studies of human beings and literature, in philosophy, in history, in political theory, and so on. But mathematics and science, as my example show, I think, can also be pursued for their own sake. So it's not just the humanities, it's um, it's whatever it is in a human being that taps into um, our highest possibilities. So what I mean by highest possibilities? What makes the love of learning for its own sake any different from the love of sports for its own sake, the love of walking in the woods for its own sake, making model ships out of toothpicks for its own sake? So the term liberal learning has nothing to do with um, liberalism, I don't think, strictly speaking, whether classic or contemporary. It means a kind of learning that liberates, that cultivates a kind of freedom. So the examples, the stories I began with, I think are all people who have um, found for themselves a kind of freedom. And uh, I've spent some time not very successfully trying to really articulate and put my finger on what exactly that type of freedom is. So I'll say a few things about it that will not be quite adequate, but um, you can think through uh, what, what kind of thing makes sense from where you're sitting and what what you see in your daily life so in what sense do these human beings display freedom they are prisoners they're enslaved people they are people who are deprived of various basic goods of of dignity and decency they have highly restricted choices so it's a strange kind of freedom that a prisoner can keep or that a prisoner might have special access to so what what counts as so what's, what's, what's the kind of slavery that they escape if people like this in these extremely deprived conditions are free? So I think um, one way to see that is to go around the other way. I think much of us, many of us, um, I, I usually talk to college students um, and I, I think college students especially are prone to a kind of, but all of us are, a kind of autopilot um you you know you go through school you go to college you go to graduate school everyone you know in your social class is doing that you don't really know why you're doing it then you go to grad school then you get a job and this social group or social class is is more or less what determines what you do um and that's not a bad thing in itself uh, we need communities and we need guidance and these things but it has to be looked at with some care so education is necessary for most work forms of work that bring either money or status and sometimes it's straightforward and sometimes it hides behind something different so it, it seems to me quite if i think about adult the cases of adults um as i think many of you are i don't know how many of you are college students and how many of you are adults um we can find that uh our autopilots can lead us into work that is Strictly speaking, meaningless, despite its high prestige or its or its high pay. So this is what's what the sociologist David Graeber calls BS jobs. So you're, you're doing something that has the pretense of importance, but where there's no real tangible good, you're uh, checking boxes for a particular bureaucratic form and those those forms go into a file where no one ever looks at them. It's got to be done, but the the worth of what's being done is completely invisible. Uh, There's an example in Graeber's book of a subcontractor to a subcontractor in the military. And his job is to drive long distances to move furniture from one room to another. There are stories about people who are hired to not to fix problems which need to be fixed because there's a conflict in the in the higher up of the higher among the higher ups of the company, so I um, I think most of the people who I talk to in the in the American uh, middle class uh, have jobs something like this. Um, they they have money, they have some prestige, but the point of what they're doing, the human value of what they're doing, is very unclear. This is a kind of autopilot that we fall under, um, and we we lack um the ability to see what's truly useful and our being in a network where we're rewarded with prestige or with wealth makes it extremely difficult to extricate ourselves from it there's no way out of it without losing either some status or some wealth and sometimes without making significant risks to oneself or the people that one cares about So autopilot, the autopilot that's given us to our by our communities is on the one hand, something that we need, but on the other hand, something which is dangerous for us. And um, even if we're not um, political prisoners, even if we're not enslaved, even if we're not uh, exploited working people, we may well be in situations where we are uh, locked in place um, by this, um, by the expectations and by the incentive structure of our culture. So it's this that um, I think is the type of slavery from which we all need to be liberated and um, that liberal learning is especially well uh, well suited to do. Uh, so liberal learning relies on the principle that I am most free when I exist for my own sake. That is, um, that's probably not a very good way of saying what I mean, which is something like my cultivation of myself, um, which is not, despite the name, not self-involved, but somehow rooted in one's own judgment, in one's own freedom so that one, say, chooses freely to serve others in a particular way or chooses freely to examine some piece of reality like the peregrine falcons or certain mathematical proofs or reading old books. So it's, it has what source in oneself and it, it develops oneself so that the thing that you learn, the thing when you learn for its own sake, is not something that anyone can take away from you. Um, You know, I work in higher education and I'm a part of various conversations about higher education. And, um, you know, we hear a lot about learning for the sake of success, Um, but I think more often about learning for the sake of failure. That is, what do I need to know? What kind of person do I need to be to face the worst circumstances? That is, it, it may not be up to me in my path of education or my path of career, uh, whether or not I am successful. I can make all the best choices in the world and still end up in, in chaotic times, in difficult times, in times of economic uncertainty, in times of um, war, in times of the threat of war. I can end up losing uh, everything that I thought I was going to get. And the, I think the primary purpose of education is not training to function in a success, for success in a world that changes, but the gathering to oneself of, of goods that are going to endure no matter what happens. That's what I think you see in these cases of prisoners. Um, this Romanian guy in Siberia who has memorized these French poems in school, I'm sure he didn't know at the time that he was giving himself a resource which would take him through um, the most difficult time of his life uh, but that's the kind of thing that that real learning that deep learning that liberal learning does uh various kinds of work um and ambition and the functionings of ambition have a kind of enchanting effect um they're means to an ends and The value depends on those ends and those ends like um, economic flourishing or um, being able to function in a particular society depend they're real goods they're not fake goods um but they um they can be limited and we're we're put together so as to value them in ways which are not quite appropriate we think that they're more than they really are we somehow imagine that they're providing the meaning to our lives when they are perhaps just partial to our flourishing and perhaps harmful to it. Uh, So I want to conclude um, the last few minutes of my talk, um, which I'm afraid had a bit too much in it, but I hope you each heard something which uh, you can use in whatever way Uh, is appropriate to you. Um, That's kind of the advantage of packing a lot into a talk. There are obvious disadvantages, but I hope we'll have some time to talk and you can ask questions. Um, I suppose I wanted to return to the question about dark times. And I think one of the things that I I think I've started to believe from studying these stories and thinking about them and telling them to various audiences is that all times are dark. that um, the the human success um, human comfort is is always more rare and more fragile than we think it is so the the value of intellectual life of learning for its own sake of liberal learning these are all terms I use more or less interchangeably the value of it is um in some sense, uh, true without respect to times. Um, but I do think that uh, as I hope sort of came through in the examples, it is, um, it is especially precious in dark times. Because one thing that I think a dark time must be is one where uh, the highest possibilities of a human being are, are, are threatened or are diminished or threatened to be diminished. Uh, And the only appropriate response seems to me to cultivate those things and to pass on that cultivation to others. So I'm going to conclude. I want to leave lots of time for questions because I, I think there's plenty for you all to untangle there. And I think I've gestured in a lot of directions without being perfectly clear about how far it could go. But I wanted to conclude by reading a passage from the um, early modern philosopher Pascal, um, who was, apart from being a philosopher, also an extremely brilliant mathematician and, and physicist. So this is Pascal from his uh, Paul which is a collection of um, philosophical reflections. Man is but a reed the weakest thing in nature, but he is a thinking reed. The entire universe need not arm itself to crush him. A vapor, a drop of water suffices to kill him. But if the universe were to crush him, man would still be more noble than that which killed him because he knows that he dies and the advantage which the universe has over him. And the universe knows nothing of this. A thinking read, it is not from my space, not from space, not from magnitude that I must seek my dignity, but from the government of my thought. I shall have no more if I possess worlds. By space, the universe encompasses and swallows me up like an atom. By thought, I comprehend the world. So thank you and I look forward to hearing any questions you may have, thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Zena. Well, we're very glad to have had your talk this morning. Um, Let's see, I I put a little uh, note in the chat that what we've we've been doing is we have people try to summarize their questions. You don't have to type out the whole question because you're going to ask it directly to Zena. But we just want to get an idea of what your question or comment is, and we'll use that to moderate the queue. Okay, so if you have a question or you'd like to ask Zena something, just try to type a sentence or two, a sentence is fine, in the chat so that we have an idea of what you'd like to ask. Um, so maybe, maybe uh, as we're waiting, I see there's one person, uh, I think this is Alfred Pang uh, who uh, is typing in the chat, um, but uh, maybe you'd like to go first?
2: Sure, thanks Father. Hi Zina. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Um,
1: I can hear you fine,
2: yeah. Thanks Zina, for your um, talk, I I found it very rich. Um, There's a lot in there that I'm chewing on. But I just want to make two points as I put that in the chat. I think what came up for me as I hear you is how the intellectual life as the place or as the site, For nurturing a prophetic mysticism um, in the ordinary. I think what I'm hearing from you is how can we reclaim study as a spiritual practice, right? That orients us to the transcendent that is already operative in in what we are doing. You know, and I've been, as I hear you, it's interesting, I've been going back and forth to Jürgen Moltmann's um, book on. The theology of the spirit of life, and there's a section where he writes that the place of mystical experience is the very truth, the cell, the prison cell. You know, uh, and how church history points back to the mystical devotion of the cloister, to the experience of the martyrs in the prison cells. So that whole image of imprisonment kind of shows up for me. The two image of the monk, the cloister the martyrs and how that is connected so much to how we understand our vocation as scholars. So just kind of tied to the first point. And the second one, um, I thought you asked a really good question there in terms of what exactly are dark times and what is the content of our fears? And I hear a deeper question there. Perhaps the question there is, when we no longer know where to ground our hope in, then the question becomes, what do we ground our hope in? And how then do we cultivate the intellectual life in educating for hope? So just a couple of thoughts and comments and I would love to hear some of what you have to offer.
0: Uh, thank you. I, I, I want to think a bit about hope. So thanks for your first comments also, the, the prison cell. I actually, no, I'm gonna talk about both. So the first one, um, what it reminds me is something which I think I was trying to suggest, but could maybe make more explicitly I think in Christianity, one of the reasons why the life of the the monastic life and the life of the martyr are so central is that um, they those lives point us to the fact that all of us are going to lose everything. So there's a sort of fact of of um suffering and death which everyone faces. But which these particular figures these lives um look straight in the eye and they they find the the tr they they face themselves towards the transcendent good and that's not to say that i think in the case of monastic life there's also just human goods that are that are achieved there i don't i don't think it's all about it it's definitely not all about um depriving oneself of everything that one could possibly deprive oneself of. But it, it's, you you pull back to the point where you're less likely to be taken up by things which are, are not enduring. And not just not enduring, but maybe in some way dehumanizing, especially things like the desire for wealth and status. So as far as hope is concerned, it's funny, I don't use the, I don't talk about hope much. And I think that's because it has it has such a uh i try to talk to broad audiences and to me hope has a very specific clear theological dimension like where is my hope if i'm a christian my hope is in god and in god alone right my um so i it's it's not in anything else it's something about what do i rely on i put no trust in princes um you know in ordinary men in whom there is no help right? my help is in the name of the lord who made heaven and earth um and i think it's i like to think of us more as i think part of the human good that hope aims at is our ability to freely and creatively um, reimagine even our daily lives even in ordinary ways that's that's the human aspect of hope and i think that I see, that, I see those things in, in these kinds of stories. They're not all stories of Christians, but they are all stories of people who have some kind of freedom and some kind of creativity and some kind of ability to reimagine their circumstances. Anyway, thank you for your questions. They're very interesting. Thank you. Thanks for listening also.
1: Okay. Hey, I don't know if uh, it looks like Mr. Baker would like to go.
0: Hi, Derek. We were in grad school Hi, together. <laughs>
3: yeah. Um, Hi. Yeah, I, uh, I teach at Lingnan um, until August, I guess, uh, then going back to the US. Um, so, hi. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, so this is a, a somewhat small point, but maybe there's a slightly kind of bigger uh, point um, to kind of follow up with. But um, I wouldn't rely too heavily on Graber's um, BS jobs. Uh, I, I liked the book. But um, even when I was reading it, I was kind of like, there's going to be some big problems with selection bias here if your way of figuring out which jobs are BS is to wait for angry people to send you emails about their jobs. Um, and uh, and so the, the, a study has been done. I don't know if it's been replicated. Um, so you know these things, you always have to wait a little bit. But uh, the study that's been done to try and see if his thesis holds up finds that actually generally the more money you make, the more that correlates with finding your job really meaningful um, and that it tends to be people on the, the lower end of the uh, economic totem pole who, who find their jobs meaningless. Um, and, so that, yeah.
0: I, yeah, go ahead. I, I think that's really interesting, but I'll, I'll say something about why, and I don't take Graper to be scientifically establishing his terms. I mean, I think it's what he got was some amazing stories and their value through these angry emails and their value depends on, yeah, how widespread you think that phenomenon is. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm making a bit of a uh, a judgment, a subjective judgment based on my experience, anecdotal judgment based on the people that I know in, in the middle to upper middle class. Many of us do feel this way, even people with very, High prestige and supposedly high meaning jobs, like philosophy professors at major universities, just for instance, they're they're often um, really feel like their jobs are pointless. Uh, so I think that the what I suspect, I mean, this is I don't have any empirical proof for this. but What I suspect is that when you're asking lower level workers, is your work meaningful? What what you're gonna tr- what you're what you might end up tracking is how much it stinks to have those jobs yep. um, because, because you're treated so badly and because it's so hard to keep your life together, um, under those really exploitative conditions. But I think, I don't know, again, I, I don't, this isn't the kind of thing that's evidence-based it's, it's just what I see out there in the world. Um, I think that feeding people and keeping stuff clean, that's very meaningful work. Um, and there's something perverse about um, having the really essential, really meaningful work on which we all rely, home healthcare aides and garbage collection and food service, um, somehow that's, that's lower level. Whereas people who, like management consulting is, is high level. And yeah. I, I, I think there's something that's gone wrong. And that's what I'm trying to diagnose, however, inadequately. But I, I'm grateful for the question. I didn't. I didn't. I, I think it would be bad to think that somehow, um, to use Graeber's work to say, uh, lower level work is great and high prestige work is terrible. There's a deeper problem and a set of problems that I think they're pointing to. Um. Anyway, uh, that's that's what I think I would say. But thank you for pushing on pushing me on that. I yeah. appreciate it.
4: Yeah. No. No.
3: That's. All. I mean. I mean. Look. Even. I think if I remember right, it was like you know even people making a lot of money. It's you know like seventy percent find their jobs meaningful, right? So you're you're gonna have yeah. like substantial numbers of quite dissatisfied people uh in the in these jobs. And I, I mean I, I don't know, talking talking to people in business, I gather that um not all management consulting companies are created equally. Like some actually <laughs> are trying to actually do have methods to make the business work better and others are you know from,
0: right no no um, no of course yeah I, w- I wasn't meaning to suggest that of, of so of it's yeah it's not universal but it might yet be per- pervasive in some way or other i think it's hard to tell how it's it's very hard it seems to be hard to judge and i don't trust the polling because i don't know what how the yeah, question about meaning is framed or how it's understood so i would want to talk to these people and ask them a set of questions and see whether yeah, i could get I'll the be- answer whether I could get the answer I want out of them you know that's how I would conduct my study you know just how could I validate how (laughs) can I validate my priors um but anyway thanks for the thanks for the question
1: okay thank you very much maybe we go next to Jacob Richard Thomas
4: hi Azana I really adore your uh method of zero powerpoint and lots of great stories To to build on the selection bias point, I I also was wondering if these stories that you were telling of like prisoners and slaves uh, are also probably not representative, but even that's aside, they're not empirically representative, they're super inspirational. And we really have maybe overtold them. Like we think, we also think of Dostoevsky, Gramsci, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, all in the prison, writing these treatises that, as school children we have to read um, right. because there are many uh, expressions of the human spirit and they're more valuable than things that people wrote outside of prison. So right. I think that like the value doesn't come from always from the representatives from this, but in how it inspires us to, to live differently. Um, what, I, what I was kept thinking about is how as a child growing up in a lower middle class um, American household, I felt very deprived um to the extent that i could learn that almost my poverty was an excuse that i shouldn't educationally excel um i had a like a encyclopedia in my closet and like looking back looking at what i know people have in other places much poorer places in the world i was super wealthy i was like maybe in the one percent you know in terms of my resources but it raises this question of a lot of time in the in the discipline of education there's this whole debate about whether schools have enough funding, whether they have enough money for the children to learn. And, yeah. and it's very interesting because it's, you, you tell these stories and you could see there's a spirit to learn that people didn't need those resources. And I remember getting to a point where I argued with my high school teacher, like I don't think schools should complain much about not having enough funding. Because I don't think it's as important as the teachers and the administrators make it out to be, and I think a real deal breaker was the, uh, the internet. Once the internet emerged, that was a real game changer. I think because if you're not in prison, if you can access the World Wide Web, and you can, and there's all these e-books and things, a lot of us don't need to consume a lot of money to learn, to create, to do research, and and so. This then, so that this is a question of the material, necessary material foundations for learning. It throws that into question. Then the second thing is, if you're spending so much time learning and creating and doing research, we live in a world of discourse about economic material scarcity and ecological crisis. And I think that's what a lot of people spend money doing, shopping, consuming, being entertained, uh, going to restaurants, all those things. But a lot of the learning pursuits, the creative pursuits, don't cost any money. And and you can think about that as a solution to a lot of the problems we face, both ecologically as a civilization, but also materially, which you see in the newspaper all the day inflation and employment, all these things. These things, I'm not saying these things are important, but it's interesting to think about the spirit of learning that you're talking about in dark times with respect to often how we characterize these dark times together today, which is. Both in terms of politics, but also economic scarcity and ecological crisis. So, uh, I'll let Thank you, you th- riff off of all th- that.
0: Thank you. So, I, I I will take a riff off of the question about resources. So, I would be horrified if my work were used to justify not funding teachers.
4: Oh, <laughs> so yeah, no, I was just saying, I, yeah, think, yeah, it's I think
0: schools should be. I don't think everyone should be imprisoned because it would be good for them. Uh, I, I I'm not. That, that's that's. I, but it's interesting that I, I have to remind myself from time to time that i could be understood that way um so the uh, but i do think that and this is coming from the world where i live in right which is again across the world from you guys and i i don't know enough about life in hong kong to know what what people face there um so uh, where, where i live what's expensive is not resources as in Books. It's it's people. So the thing that I think is crucial for education is mentoring. It's it's personal relationships with teachers who like it and um, I think people see that in the U.S. It's coaches or or piano teachers or music teachers or athletic teachers or martial arts teachers. Um, these are these are personal relationships which um help a young person to develop habits and forms of excellence in a particular area and understand a certain aspect of reality so because i care so much about that personal connection i'm very gung-ho for educational resources but i don't think actually i what i what i think the spirit and what you're saying that i think resonates with me and what i what i think i agree with is um you can do really Serious, deep study with hardly anything. I mean, um, a book and a friend. Now, <laughs> a friend can be hard to find, but <laughs> but uh, um, you you can you can you can learn and think. and that's I think what those examples are meant to, all the stories are meant to show. They're not meant to show ideal circumstances, but they're meant to to help people think about what's possible even in very difficult circumstances and and i i'm grateful to you also for because i i think you're right vis-a-vis what i was talking about with derek that the point is not the point of my examples is not to somehow establish a general truth it's to help the people that are listening to me form their imaginations in such a way that helps them work out something um helps them to reimagine or rethink some possibility in the world. I think we we're 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 in such a data-driven uh, established knowledge type of world we don't think about how important that can be to just think creatively and broadly about what life could look like. so i I don't ever mean to say all prisoners have wonderful, rich inner lives. Of course they don't it's circumstances are designed to prevent that that's the point of prison is to keep people from having their lives but the the fact that it's possible means it's so it's built in very deep to human beings and very simple resources can unfold it and that's i think the kind of possibility that i want to hold out that it's very deep in a, a very deep kind of human need and you don't need much um you don't need much to to um, achieve some degree of freedom and dignity, even in the worst circumstances. Anyway, thank you for the pressure. I appreciate it. It's a very interesting set of thoughts and questions.
1: Okay, I think next we have Cynthia Pong.
5: You're muted. Are Are you here?
1: Oh, there she is.
5: Can you hear me now? Go ahead, yeah. Okay. Uh, first first of all, thank you Sina for the uh, very interesting talk and the stories that you um, gather for us. Um, as I was listening, I guess I was thinking how um, particularly prison ministries are important uh, these days in Hong Kong. Um, many of our young people are in prison and uh, and I was thinking probably Many of them don't really have the um, the experience or the discipline to to know how to pursue that kind of um, um, quest for reflection uh, for thinking because precisely the prison, as you said, is you know designed to well, I guess in most cases, they are meant to be penal rather than rehabilitational. So it seems to me that um, those of us who are able to, uh, may do more in prison ministries as, you know, by way of reaching out, by way of showing them that that there are people who care. So, So the prison is not only a place where Human relationships are shut out. Uh, that they can still, in that, in those circumstances, um, connect with people, uh, connect with ideas. It just strikes me as I listen to you that um, uh, maybe we need more efficacy in that. I think in Hong Kong, higher education for prisoners. Uh, uh, I I don't think there's been too much of a, a, a success story there. So I think it's something that uh, we need to find ways to explore. Thank you. Uh,
0: no, thank you. I, um, I spent a few years, not many years, but a few years doing mm. both uh, prison ministry, both Christian ministry, that is Bible study, mm. and also I taught a couple of philosophy classes, mm. intro to philosophy in, in two different prisons and um it was incredible work now mind you mind you these are yeah um this is in in the in the US which is a, a you know it's its own prison population but i was struck um the people who i talked to were not like the romanian pr- political prisoner who'd probably gone to some fancy boarding school and forced was forced to memorize french poems they were very ordinary people and often people with from really um with really just the bleakest backgrounds you could imagine, you know, of uh, abuse and poverty and drugs and exploitation and what have you. Um, and uh, th- when they were, I think, I, I don't think I'm imagining this. I think it was partly because they were in jail or because they were imprisoned. They were they they wanted to think about things. They wanted to reflect. There was a real desire to reflect and to understand. And it could be relatively simple, something based on a scripture passage or a story. Um, although that's, it really didn't turn out to be that simple, but it was accessible. Um, and it was usually pretty something big and rich. Um, but also with the the with philosophy. So I I think it is, um, you know, in the for me at that time I was teaching undergraduates um, at at big public universities and if you've ever taught undergraduates at big public American universities, they're, they're not usually the most keen people to learn that you've ever met in your life. I mean, they have, they have all the resources, but they, the zeal is not exactly uh, impressive. And so to go behind into these really dark places where people would just, they wanted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very moving and I, I never forgot it. It mm-hmm. had a really powerful effect on the way, And in a way, it's in the background of all of my work in this area, just mm-hmm. thinking about what it meant that there were people who really wanted this type of learning, who couldn't, yeah. who didn't have access to it, and then tons of people who had access to it and just didn't care. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, and once again, you, you wonder something's, something's gone wrong. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think planting the seeds wherever one can, but I think if one has a chance to actually go and talk to prisoners, I think it's very, very, very beautiful and very worthwhile work.
1: Well, I don't think we have any more questions in the queue, Um, but if Zina, if I could ask one last question for my own benefit. Um, So I'm interested in what you might suggest this way. So I think one of the difficulties people have today with sort of the liberal, let's say liberal arts education project, it works in some places, in small select universities like St. John's College, um, because you can sort of, you can achieve agreement, what kind of values you want to promote among your students at St. John's College. It's a small enough institution But you might worry, um, well, the big state schools or public research universities, the pressures people have today from all the administration and the sorts of requirements that evidence-based teaching and the student evaluations and all that just undermines for almost every other school apart from poor St. John's uh, being able to really do that kind of education into a kind of great books, liberal arts education. Um, and I think there's also, apart from that, also a lot of uh, uh, people not agreeing what kind of things should count as the classics people should study because that involves values, right? And picking what kind of values you want to promote and secular institutions that are, I mean, St. John's is secular in a way, but I mean, uh, big public public state schools are not going to be the same kind of, um, not going to have the same agreement about values is my point. So I guess okay. from your perspective, what would you think in terms of dealing with these two things? Uh, because it, for me as an educator, I would wish we could change the education system. And I'd just like to hear what you think would be a way to help normal people everywhere get that kind of education into you know, something that's a real liberal art that can free you.
0: So th- thank you for that question. Um, it's uh, yeah, I uh, I'm grateful to have a chance to to talk about my thoughts here. The first thing I want to say is that um, I'm 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 not an educational policy writer, and um, partly because I don't have much inclination to be, and partly because I don't have much background to be, um, but also because I think that. It goes back to the other theme that we've been talking about about the importance of forming the imagination, as I think we lack ideals um, by which our education should be shaped. Um, and uh, I think without ideals, and there could be a variety of ideals, and they could even be in conflict with one another in in these big pluralistic societies. But even so, ideals on their own, I think, matter for education. So i'm trying to find ways to shape those ideals and to help people think about their ideals, and I think there won't be any way out of the kinds of educational crises we're in if we don't think that way. So so that's that's just a bit about what my basic project is um, I, I, as far as policy is concerned um, I do know a few things so, for instance, the big state schools, I mean you're basically right right there's a reason why. I left teaching in big state schools and went to a monastery and then came back to St john's I mean I couldn't I, I found the environment just too hostile to the kind of education that I thought really mattered. But that said, I know a lot of people and i've got to know more from being out in the public of it there's a lot of people who have carved out corners in big institutions where real learning takes place. So core programs, honors programs, um, first year experience programs. Um, you know, one place I taught early on was Auburn University in, in Alabama, their philosophy department in the middle of this massive ag school where football is is the primary, the the sort of cardinal value, um, and football is great and everything. I'm nothing against football or agriculture. They're both great. Um, but not, not an environment you would have thought was hospitable to the liberal arts. Their philosophy department has just carved out a little home for themselves. They look after their students. They do real learning. They have a real community. They think about things. So I think that's that's for for individuals, for individual faculty members, That's that's feasible in many cases to find a way to carve out within one's Institution, some kind of home. Um, as far as, and then the other tactic, which is what I've tried to undertake with the Catherine Project, is to move outside of the institutions. So to set up, I mean, the Catherine Project is online education, open to anyone, no cost, no credits, no grades. So just completely unplugged from any possible administrative hurdle. <laughs> Um, And, uh, you know, we're supported by grants at this point and and donations from our readers. Uh, And it's very simple. Um, It's very low cost, we all run on volunteers. um, And we're able to just keep this kind of activity alive and accessible to people who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. So I, I think that, and there are many, many new institutions of this kind uh so i i think that those those two things the the institutional uh havens the little corners within larger institutions that are can be kind of homes and then um finding creative ways of bringing it out to the world that don't rely on our institutions that's that's i think because i i'm well aware i mean i love st john's it's the best place to teach in the world but i'm well aware that it's very small and survives only under very um, fine, tender conditions. It can't really be scaled. Um, but I don't know if anything can be scaled. You kind of have to sit where you are and figure out what's possible from wherever you're sitting. And that's another reason why I resist policy because I just think, well, there's there's so many different kinds of universities in the world. There's so many different people in different kinds of circumstances in them. you know, Do some thinking and, and imagining and then figure something out from where you are. Um, uh, So that's, but anyway, I'm grateful for the question. Yeah, if uh, if that helps. Thank you very
1: much. I don't know if, are are you comfortable taking one more? I don't wanna keep you up too late.
0: No, it's fine. Uh, I'm okay. happy to I'm happy. Let's, I can let's I can I can, I can I can stay up even even to 10:30 I think. I think I can make it. Okay. Time.
1: Okay. Okay. Derek well, remembers I, we do, had some late why don't nights we just I think back say, back This back will be the last this will be the last one then. So All Jacob right. Richard Thomas has one more follow.
4: Yeah. And then, we'll, is we'll then a, um, uh, just to follow up uh, uh, I wasn't saying uh, education is um, uh, that, that doesn't require material resources. I actually think that the the people are actually um, like very important um, in mentorship. And related to that, I'm a first year professor in Hong Kong and I know what you said, it'd probably be like, think about your institution and how to adapt it because it's probably different, but I've confronted the the difficulty of, um, it may be my inexperience, but also it may be a cultural thing in in Asia of engaging students on a mentorship basis. Um, I've tried to make myself really available at office hours I taught was teaching qualitative methods, but I was just hoping or expecting, I'm probably Zoom got in the way in um, COVID restriction, but I'm just wondering um, if there was anything more I could have done in terms of kind of advising students more on a one-on-one basis, because I find the difficulty is that a lot of students don't have this mindset of like, this person can mentor me. I can learn through a relationship with this professor and they're not even coming to office hours or engaging with me in that way um so unless they're outside the institution they went inside that that they, i get a lot right. of those but i mean like, people are already here I, who want to benefit yeah. from me i don't feel they're benefiting from me and it's a little frustrating but it's their loss yeah. but still it'd be better if they could so i, I, just think that's I far yeah far.
0: it it may be cultural i don't know i know that it's increasingly common in the us so um young people are increasingly comfortable with a totally anonymous like um content delivery style education um and i I find there's almost nothing i find more disturbing than that um but i i also i think that the people don't know and i think COVID has made it worse because uh, all of their person-person relationships have become more unfamiliar um and young people have often gone through some formative years without having much experience with them and that's something, even in a super personal, small community like St. John's, something that we're noticing with our students who have been online for two years. They don't. There's certain kinds of interaction they don't understand, um, and even they don't reach out to us as much as they should. I I think the first thing is that it's it, it, what's really tricky about a large institution, about building a culture, a little home within it, is that the best thing, the most helpful thing, is to find some colleagues who can. Um, build a little community among yourselves and then pass on to your students something in common so that you have some support it's not just you and the students in the vast institution that's one thought the other thought is that if i think it's like reading great books which young people are also not motivated to do and they pick one up and they're like what was the point of that this is too hard to read um um, It's something. And why should I overcome this really social, this really socially awkward situation of talking to my professor? I mean, why would I do that? It's something which experience cures. So if they know, if they have the experience of being seen by a teacher, and mentored and helped with something, and that if they see the kind of thing that can be done with that kind of education, they see see what if they see some models of what one could achieve by it that one couldn't get by content delivery then they'll like it they'll like it a lot they'll take to it so one thing you might do in class is to just set up as a requirement if it's feasible i don't know what kind of your class size is but to set up meetings with students even if it can only be a few um just just require i think i did this once when i was teaching at umbc and outside of baltimore i had um Twenty-minute conversations about their papers or something like that. Uh, it, it may again, with certain class sizes, it's not feasible. Um, but I, I think it can be. People don't know what they're missing, and you have to find a way to get it to them. Uh, that's just a few ideas. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's a real challenge. I don't. Nothing I say means to diminish that. It took me many years of, um, of beating my head against the wall before. I figured out I just had to leave and go to something else. So uh, I'm in a way like the worst example of someone decided to advise you on it because I, I, uh, I couldn't manage it. But there are many good people out there. Um, uh, Roosevelt Montas at Columbia has been writing about this. It's he, at a big university. It's Ivy League, but it's still big in a lot of ways. Um, Tom Merrill at American University. There are people who have built out who have built little havens for themselves in, in larger institutions, they're writing about what they're doing too. So thanks a lot.